Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the final chapter in psychology of performance, I can't cite the research. I know that Ed, uh, Eddie O'Connor refers to some of it for athletes. That sports psychologist Eddie O'Connor talked about how uh, I can start recommending other resources like Eddie O'Connor's Psychology of Performance. Dr. Eddie O'Connor in the Psychology of Performance has a chapter on burnout. I quote Dr. Eddie O'Connor again. Okay, here we are. Hi, Dr. Eddie. Hey there, how are you? How are you doing today? Uh, excellent. It's it's uh, it's great. Very excited to be here. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you. Okay. Well, excellence is a key word of what you have been teaching about. I'm going to introduce you by telling everybody what they already know in our audience. You know that two years ago, I took this course through the great courses, the Psychology of Performance, How to Be Your Best in Life a huge claim. And after two months immersed in it, I wrote on the inside front cover, Marshall spent two months going through this book twice, transferring notes, etc. This has been the greatest gold mine of a course that I found in about 30 years, applicable to training students in the arts, but also to me beginning a new career. And I found it hugely valuable. The content is extraordinary. And the byline of how to be your best in life is is hardly an exaggeration. We have an hour with Dr. Eddie himself. And so I'm going to ask questions best I can. I've got to tell you, the hardest thing about asking you questions is that in the last two days, I've been reviewing this book, the guidebook, And I feel like you have answered almost every question that I have had to ask about performing. So it's a little bit of like, what do I do now? Just uh, spend the hour expressing fandom to you (laughs) as a teacher? You know, I I have to really give a lot of credit to the great courses. And um, when they pursued me about this, uh, you know, they were really saying, hey, we'd like you to apply it um, to, to life. And through no big negotiation, but through their their guidance and their leadership, um, being able to come together and then the feedback in the years that it's come out from people like yourself, but people from all ages. Um, I think one of the first reviews I got was somebody who was 75 and said that they wish they had it 50 years ago. Yes. Um, but how it's still applied to um, every dimension, parents, uh, and every aspect of musicians, performing artists. But, the idea that we're able to, and we're going to discover this all here today, is that while it's based in sports psychology, um, 
That's just the context. And the way that I in particular like to work is say, let's understand the way our thoughts and feelings influence behaviors. And then we can talk about it in any context. And so I'm really looking forward to um, applying it to your audience here today. Okay. Well, I noticed that at the beginning of the guidebook, there is a disclaimer. You have it in the videos too, uh, that lets people know that uh, uh, we don't want to claim more than we, we ought to, or that you ought not to use this as a medical reference to diagnose, treat, or prevent medical or mental health illnesses or trauma. Uh, do you want to tell us anything about why the disclaimer is in there? Have you had experiences where people felt like, you know, this is, this is the answer to everything in my life? Honestly, I think it's just, it, it legally has to be there. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It's, uh, I believe it's in every one of the courses or I, we have it on our general websites to psychologists and stuff too, because um, if you're going to treat a, a mental health issue, for example, you know, we're going to have a formal relationship. There's going to be a certain amount of responsibility and requirements that's in there. And so since these are more intended for general public consumption um, mm -hmm. and information and education, um, of course, we want to be as scientifically accurate as possible. Um, however, it's, it's more of a one directional relationship. And so it's just, I think, some legal terms to clarify that, um, you know, much like this here today is that it can't be the substitute for having a personal relationship uh, with a psychologist or sports or performance psychologist to address your specific issues. Um, at the same time, I don't want to undersell it too much and say that, you know, this information is valid and important and um, research based. And by all means, don't be afraid to use it. Um, it just, I think, helps uh, the courses or the websites and things of that nature to say we're not personally responsible. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because we can't be because we don't know you. <laughs> right, yeah. It's I guess it's saying that as excited as you may get about this material, it does not mean that uh, that you are guaranteed eternal life, that you will never die because you have learned to be your best in life. Uh, yeah. I, I, that, one of the things that impressed me about it is that when I was about 19 years old, I found self-help books and really absorbed self-help books and, and got a lot out of them. But as time went on, I felt that there was a lot of uh, over-promising, mm. under-delivering, and much of it was just based on emotional uh, and imaginary speculations about how things would go. This course is so grounded in research. You have lifetimes of research yeah. all boiled down so that over those 24 topics, which the titles of the lectures alone are what sold me on if somebody's going to spend one chapter, one lecture on this title, it's going to get me thinking about these things. Those alone were enough to motivate me to go for it. But then when I got into it and I saw how balanced you were about how the research conclusively shows this, but it does not conclusively shows this, but there's some evidence for this, there was a sense of confidence. There was a sense of that I'm with a grown-up who I can trust who really knows this and is going to guide me well. So that was one of the reasons why it was uh, it was something worth delving into and taking every little bit out of it. 
Well, thank you. A couple of things about that. One, it, it partially reflects my personal philosophy, and you'll get this in the next hour, is that you're, you are responsible for your performance. Like if you're going to excel, nobody else can do it for you. No, it doesn't matter how good of a teacher I am or how, how much I want it for you. I am absolutely powerless. And so the more that we can assume the responsibility for our performance, um, the, the better off we're going to be. The second aspect is, um, again, in, in the curriculum that we put together, I was so excited because I was like, okay, well, you've got this course idea, this title, like, what, what do you want? What do you need in it? And they're like, well, that's up to you. So I got to create this from scratch, which was a joy because I'd seen what had already been out there. And I was like, well, how do I make this unique and different than what has previously been done? And so again, as you'll see that it comes through it with the emphasis of acceptance. And I, I'm, I'm a psychologist, a sports psychologist, performance psychologist. I don't believe in positive thinking. I think motivation is overrated. And, and we'll get to that because life is hard and excellence is difficult. And if we don't start to accept the things um, that need to be endured, um, then we're not going to succeed. So we can't always be positive in negative situations. I mean, if, if, you're, if you've got a big art show coming up, um, why should you not be nervous? That doesn't make any sense to me. So promoting, you know, why should you think that you should succeed if you haven't prepared? There's a danger to overly being confident or, or having too much positive thinking. So I wanted to really go through the course and, and make it very, very grounded. And the third aspect is like, this has nothing to do with me. I'm just a conduit of all the shoulders that I'm standing on of everybody else's research. So it was easy to kind of maybe do the opposite of what sometimes will be like, they're trying to sell a product or make these promises to make a buck. And this is really, no, 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 look, this has nothing to do with me. This is just the information that's out there. Let's see if we can pull it together and make the world a better place. So I'm glad to hear that that actually came through. Um, you know, this isn't my stuff. Uh, this is the, the world's stuff. I'm glad I was able to just put it into a few hours for you. Well, I want to ask you personally, why did you get into this? I mean, you've devoted your life to... Yeah. We should probably say that performing is one aspect of it, but another aspect of it is this is the psychology of performance. This is not training your muscles and your body so much as it is training your mind and your attitudes and what has worked. You even begin that first chapter on the history of the psychology of performance to show how about a hundred plus years ago, yeah. people started to see that there were certain ways of people organizing their, their time, their life, their conversations that would affect performance. And then by the time the 20th century came in, it developed as psychology developed. And then by the time the late 20th century came in, the amount of money that sports offered meant that research was being done like I had no idea about so that we can rest assured that this is a confident claim. Uh, how, what got you into this? Were you an athlete to begin? I was. Um, I, don't, I don't know that was a very good one, but um, uh -huh. it started with psychology actually. Very interesting. Like for whatever reason, I always... I always like to talk and to help people. You hear every psychologist, I like to say that. But even in elementary school, I remember like, you know, if somebody needed me, I'd be the person to talk to, even though the bully that we'd get into a fight and I'm from the Bronx, so you did fights back then. And I would still talk to him about his problems. It was just, it was a natural fit for me. I remember in high school, I would lay in bed at night reading Freud's analysis of dreams because I found it fascinating. So I had no doubt that I wanted to be a psychologist. I went to college and then it wasn't until the last class that I took of sports psychology. I didn't know that it existed. And it intrigued me because I was a runner in high school. It was all about my athletic identity. I was, I was a runner, cross country, indoor, outdoor. And to tell you a quick story, like it, it didn't end well. Like I was dedicated. I, I had the greatest work ethic. 
Um, again, I just, I was middle of the pack and I got stuck my senior year where I kept running. I was at 800 meters. I was trying to break 210. I kept hitting 211 my junior year and all through my senior year. And with my training, I should have been easily breaking this. And for those of you that run or whatever, like that's, that's really fast for me now. That'd be amazing. But you know, in high school, it's okay. But I kept crossing the finish line, throwing up as if I was exhausted and I wasn't tired. And this happened week after week after week. And I had no idea what was going on. It wasn't until I went to graduate school and learned more about this. What I figured out was that my identity was so wrapped up in my performance that my unconscious fear of failure, because let's be honest, I was still running 211. I wasn't winning races. I was still failing. I kept hope alive by not giving 100% unconsciously. And then even trying to convince myself that this throwing up as if I was tired. Now, I've worked out and thrown up tired. This was different. But something in me unconsciously was so threatened by the idea, if I give 100% and I still fail and I don't break 210, I had this tremendous identity crisis and fear of, of what would happen. Now, here's my first intervention to everybody listening. If I had just answered the question, I would probably would have been fine because it's not like Nike was pursuing me. I was getting no college scholarships. My girlfriend you know, and, and family still love me. Nothing would have been different if I had tried harder and failed. But it didn't feel that way. And here's another big point because our anxiety isn't related to often the reality of what's going on outside. It's related to how much we care about something. And I cared about breaking 210. And unconscious, all this unconscious stuff went on. So anyway, quick tangent. The good news is that my last meet, I did run 209. I'm not sure if Brother Linus maybe was a little quick on the thumb, you know, as my last <laughs> race. But I'm going to take the official time was 209 and I did that. But, but I was left... Could I have done 205? Could, could I have run a 159 and, and really been fast? You know, how much of my mind got in my way? So I was fascinated by that. And I never looked back. Once I went to graduate school, I didn't want to just do the mental toughness training. I was still interested in psychology and in what would hold people back. And so that passion to help others. So I wanted to understand the athlete as a whole. So I got my degree in clinical psychology and the traditional psychologist path and license, but an emphasis in sports psychology and the issues that athletes suffer from most. So pain and injury, perfectionism, performance anxiety in particular is what I do a ton of uh, right now, in addition to team dynamics, as well as in the mental performance stuff. And I've just been in love with it. I'm as excited about it today as I was 20 plus years ago. Um, because the, we're really built to grow and, and that's, what, that's what life is about. And self-determination theory, as you learned in the course, says that we are built to grow and develop. Um, and I just found that when people would tell me, especially starting sports, well, just think positive. I'm like, that doesn't work. I've tried that. There's stuff that's still in my head that I just can't get rid of or change because of the fifth graders that you know were bullies in, in you know in the playground everybody's doesn't everybody have a story like that <laughs> you know these kids that are still in your head yeah. and other things that we come up with the joy that i get now when when people are stuck and i can help them release it get unstuck reach their potential like i never ever get tired of that and the fact that it doesn't take very long i mean we're not talking about 6 years of therapy or something it's like you know like what you're going to learn here today, what's in the course, the fact, and this is what I love about the podcast and the course is the fact that now we can do this, you know, with one recording and then reach thousands. Um, that's just overwhelming to me about what, what a ripple effect and impact I can make. So that's how I got in and that's why I stay in and that's why I'm going to do this to the day I die. <laughs> okay. Well, yes, you didn't mention that anywhere in the book that, uh, or in the, uh, in the guidebook or in the courses, I recall, uh, about your, 
your personal reasons, uh, there is a chapter in there, chapter three, about how values and goals drive performance. And that certainly relates to, to what you're talking about. Uh, and also having yeah. taking the time to actually write out values, as I recall, were like a compass. Goals are more like a map. Uh, and that was only chapter three. <laughs> so right there at the beginning, there was a sense of, I want to make sure that I understand why I have these goals. Yeah. And that there is research to show that if you can keep why in mind, it will help you do better. You've got a greater, a greater goal, a more abstract goal over those concrete goals. Right. And they work in synergy. And the, the really two great things about values, and I love that you brought that up again. So a goal is sort of like the destination that you want to get to in a map. Um, but once you get there, you're there. And then it's like, now what? So, you know, as a runner, it would always be, what's the next race? What's the next achievement? What's the next product or thing that we have to do? Right. So the goals are great, but then we have to kind of keep resetting them. Whereas a value is something that you live every day and you never achieve it. Things like honesty, creativity, um, strength, intimacy, family. And when you have that, you can do it every day and then wake up and do it again. And the benefit of this is because you don't achieve it there, and there is no end goal there, it's a constant source of motivation. It's really your value that helps you overcome the adversity because as you said, it's your why. Mm -hmm. And so since I'm not doing it for a particular outcome, but I'm honest because I believe in honesty, when it's tough to be honest, it kind of checks in at the identity level and say, but this is what I do and I can be more consistent. So when your values match up with what you want to become or do or, or, or you tie your goals into your values, when the process of achievement becomes difficult, maybe you don't care about that outcome as much as you used to. Maybe you're discovering it's, it's a lot harder than you thought it would be. But if the process is tied into the value, now you're doing it because that's what you do more at the level of identity. Mm -hmm. Now, let, this can be a little abstract to a person who, when they hear the word values, uh, don't have something concrete to lock onto. And when I was writing out what my values were, I know that the higher values were that I want to do my best work, which is why that, that byline meant so much to me. But then I can start to get analytical. Why do you want to do your best work? Well, because I was humiliated when I mm -hmm. was younger for doing such shoddy work. So is that what you're doing? You're going to spend your life running away from the humiliation you had in the fourth grade? And I have to look at it and say, yeah, that's part of it. <laughs> But it's not all of it. The other right. part of it is how much I loved comic books and 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 the Three Stooges and other things that were just so much a part of my life. I used to go to, to sleep at night just in love with TV shows. They gave value to my life. And so there was also a positive motivation is when I grow up, could I do good work? like my neighbors who write the television shows do. So there was there was the honesty of both there is a, a fear thing and there is an aspiration to positivity. Uh, and then also the love of ever since I was younger, I wanted to work with friends, even in junior high. How are we going to make our living together? How can we do stuff so we do really good stuff and we do it together as a team? So that was going back to things that I think were core childhood uh, values that were, were developed in, in childhood. Can you give us any examples of how values can go awry uh, that you may have? In, in other words, the fear thing. If, if as a therapist... 
You hear someone who their values are to not be humiliated for doing bad work. What's What goes on in your head in response to that? Yeah, as you were talking, I was already analyzing you and, and have, I'm going to use you as an example. But, okay. I mean, for, for everybody who's watching and listening, I mean, you can hear the difference in the way that you spoke of the two motivations. So again, scientifically speaking, we're going to have all of these internal and external motivators and it's okay. We don't have to you know, get rid of one or the other. I think one of the big issues I see in performers in, in all contexts is they want to know what's the one right way. And, and there isn't. It's not simple. We're complicated. So we want to allow a lot of these other things. So this negative uh, motivation that you have to not be humiliated again, it's okay to have it. I don't want to get hurt. So that motivates me from being, you know, putting myself in bad situations. This is where I really justify a lot of people when they have anxiety. I'm like, anxiety is not bad. Anxiety prevents you from doing really stupid things and, and getting killed or, you know, making mistakes. Like we just have to interact with it differently. If we're consumed with it, or that's the major aspect of it, we heard in your voice almost the distress, like you were reliving fourth grade. And it was more about like running away from a bear as opposed to what we want, running towards gold. Now, they look the same, but they feel really different. Mm. <laughs> and so, when you bring up the idea, as soon as you started talking about the comic books, I mean, your voice lifted up higher, your, your, your smile got bigger, and I bet your heart was thumping in, in, in a joyous way. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to have the balance between the two, but without having that positive motivation, or I don't like positive, meaningful. Now, you don't even have to know why it's important to you. I got one of mine is strength. I, I love CrossFit and working out. And I had to put that in because you know CrossFitters, we have to talk about CrossFit so now that I can check that off. But I have found that once I found that sport compared to all the other sports that I had done, it's because it was tied into my value of strength. I have no idea why I value strength. All I know is that when I'm lifting heavy things, it feels good. It feels like the right <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. I, I can't explain it. And when I ran track, people would say, why track? You're running around in a circle. I'm like, yeah, I know. Uh, I don't know. It just, this is the, the very definition of intrinsic motivation. It just, it just feels good. And somehow I'm built to want to help other people overcome their obstacles to excellence. I don't know why I decided to be that. I just know that that's who I am. And so that is the stuff that's going to carry you through all kinds of difficulty. Whereas we could give in to the negativity and the anxiety because our, our basic uh, human nature is to protect ourselves and not get hurt. So if we're only motivated by avoiding things, it could hurt our performance because now we're going to avoid taking risks. We're going to avoid putting ourselves out there. We're going to avoid rejection. We're going to avoid you know, opportunities that, you know, uh, where we may fail. And if that's our main motivation, we can use it a little bit to work hard and prepare so that we don't. But we also want to remember, will this pain be worth it? You know, am I willing to fail once in a while or sometimes even often in service of growing? So that I can, in my case, help those people or make that Olympic lift or in your audience cases, you know, create that art that brings joy to the world. And if we can make some space for the pain in service of that contribution that we want to make, it changes everything. This was another thing I very much appreciated about your teaching is that there was a balance between 
acknowledging negative and pursuing positive. Uh, the even the, the the chapter on what was it called when positive thinking doesn't work yeah. was such a realistic view. And all through the course, there was an awareness of don't don't pretend like the negative is isn't there. I can't remember whether you used the term. There's a difference between letting things go and closeting them. Uh, but uh, also even some practical uh, recommendations for if a child is interested in a sport, the best way to start is with play. Mm -hmm. And then from play, when the child likes the play enough, to lessons. And then from lessons to taking it more seriously to where gradually there's commitment and there's the embracing of pain more. Uh, it was just a very practical uh, uh, approach that goes perfectly with people going into the arts. The memories that you, the fact that you got excited about lifting heavy things <laughs> or that a person gets excited about running around. Well, I guess what it really comes down to, it doesn't make that much difference why. Not, not from a cognitive aspect. Yeah, you don't have to defend it. In fact, when I've asked my athletes or, or performers, again, uh, when I say, why do you do what you do? The ones mm -hmm. that are enjoying it the most, they just look at me and smile and they say, I don't know. I just love it. Yeah. It's when they have all these cognitive reasons that I kind of wonder, oh, is that from your parents or your teachers yeah, or because somebody yeah. told you? You know, but when I ask that question, the ones that end up, I, I know can do it through the long haul and will work with me and be invested in the mental training, they're the ones that are like, I don't know, but they just get this wash of chemicals over them that they are just happier because when they're doing it. Yeah. Which is kind of a gift to not be analytical about it. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a story teacher, Robert McKee, who explains that in storytelling, developing protagonists and characters, uh, the most important thing ultimately is what the character wants and acts toward, because that's where the story is going to come from. And knowing why they want it, whether it came from a childhood trauma or something else, can be completely irrelevant. Some of the greatest and most powerful characters, we never know why they're going for it. All we know is that they're going for it, and we're going to watch them to see what kind of trouble they're going to cause for themselves and for others. Uh, some authors care about the motivations that stem from childhood. Many great authors care nothing about that. They want to show you the trial of the pursuit of this character's quest. And I think that that is applying to what we're talking about here. If a person isn't analytical, but they are driven by a passion and a love, they're in pursuit. Is it that important what the childhood origins of it are? Well, let's take a direct performance enhancing uh, approach to this. And for those analytical people, if you did find out why, would that change anything in the way that you prepare or practice or perform? And I have yet to hear from anybody say, yeah, it would change everything. Because whatever the reason is, all that analysis actually takes you away from what is ultimately most important, which is the doing, the deliberate practice, which I know you talk a lot about. The actual doing of your art, of your creativity and engaging it. Yeah. So... If you just know that for whatever reason I want to do this, the only important thing about this is that you want to do it. I would, I would analyze it if you're not sure if you want to, if you're doing it for somebody else. That's going to make a difference. But if you don't know why you're doing it, as long as it feels pure and it feels right and it feels good and it's not hurting anybody, like that can be enough because any more analysis is going to hurt your performance because now it's less time that you can actually spend on the actual doing. 
Dr. David Viscott used to recommend that on a whiteboard, you would put the things that you want and love and that you would look at it over a period of months or years so that you can see the lies you tell yourself. Because some of them are things you thought you loved but weren't. That's meant a lot to me over the years because there were things that I thought I loved and as time went on, I never really did. But then there are other ones where there's no question. So, this is, this is the subjective aspect. This is the impulse. Uh, Dr. Eddie, I want to read some of the titles. Some people sure. will be listening to this rather than looking at the screen where we can show your table of contents. That business of deliberate practice, essential for experts, was chapter two. Right away, you're going to tell us the hard truth, which is that the only way we're going to get better is to be in our discomfort zones. Not too much, but enough to where if there's not some discomfort, we're not going to grow. And so, the experts embrace this. And that's been so much a topic of our conversations in the last number of years. There's been so many books about it. But you started right in with that. Yeah. And then you went to the values and goals. Actually, before you get to values and goals, if I can jump in on deliberate practice. Yes, please Just do. to give you um, one phrase that I've developed recently that I love to say, and I want your audience to hear this, your art doesn't care about what you think and feel. I talk about this in some of the other chapters about the independence of thoughts, feelings, and emotions. But I'm going to say it again that your art doesn't care about what you think and feel. It's just what you put on the canvas or on, on the print. And the same thing with athletes, the same thing as even our families. I mean, I'm sure they care about how we think and feel to a degree. But if we're you know beating them up and speaking meanly and not showing up, they care about what we do. Our actions thank God, are independent of our thoughts and feelings. And that's the point of the deliberate practice is that it's fun with psychology and we'll talk about a lot of things, but ultimately I want to almost devalue the psychology of it and say, mm -hmm. only deal with the psychology as much as you have to. Let's deal with action. So, I wanted to get that in. <laughs> so, the psychology is to solve a problem. When the car isn't running, there comes a point where we're going to stop the car and we're going to look underneath the hood and we're going to figure some things out. Uh, it's also interesting. I, I can imagine oh, yeah. a person who wasn't even interested in performing would be fascinated by the fact that a change uh, that people can speak some words to each other and a person can have an idea dawn in their head that is going to change their ability to perform. That's in itself interesting. Well, it's good that you say that. I shouldn't say devalue the psychology too much because we're never without thoughts and feelings. So, we actually constantly have to deal with psychology. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's uh but yeah, fascinating. You you confirmed a lot of what I had. I had some very good yoga teachers for a few years at a local studio. And a lot of what you had in the chapter on mindfulness, uh I had been listening to for a few years. That was really useful too. Uh but yeah. the, the chapter that was probably the hardest for me was the one on acceptance and the willingness to feel. Of all things, a psychology of performance class and this is going to be uh, acceptance of your feelings and the willingness yeah. to feel. And there was stuff in there about control that those are the only places in the guidebook that I put question mark uh, <laughs> on it. And it was because of emotional responses that 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 inclination to grip control yeah. is a protective mechanism. And sometimes somebody will tell me exactly what I want, I need to hear. But it is so hard to process it because it means a total shift of my bearing. 
that that is the one that even this week when I went through it, I thought, oh gosh, that is that it, you later dealt with it with being the perfect perfectionist. But there is a an ironic subversive quality of the desire to do good work that if gripped too hard, ends up guaranteeing less good work in the long run. Is that is that correctly stated? It is. And I'm so glad that you bring this up as the one that you disliked or had was uncomfortable with the most, because that means you were actually really getting what was coming across in that chapter. As many times people think, okay, well, if I accept it, I'll feel better. I'm like, no, you can't back into it that way. That's still trying to control your feelings and trying to feel better. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. All the time this happens. If I accept it, if I choose to accept it because I've got control over it, I'll feel better. Right. That's the quandary that I find so difficult. Yes. As as does every other human being. This is another reason why I love being in this because the the high performers that come to me and the challenges that, that these listeners are facing, I'm telling you, you're human. And how many problems, quote unquote, that you have is probably more directly related to how deeply you care about this. Because just as you expressed, the more I care, the more I'm giving power to my art and my products and, and my career, then the more I'm giving the power to actually hurt me if it doesn't go well. So I'm going to have the response then to be naturally protective and guarded. And that's just biology. And if you don't accept that, this is where I'm, I push back against a lot of the other things about pushing too hard about, well, you have to be confident and stuffing your feelings and, you know, only being positive. It's, it's not the way that the world works. We have four basic human emotions, happy, sad, mad, and scared. So how are we going to live in the 25% of happiness when we, you know, the other 75% of negative experience, unpleasant experiences are the only other options? It doesn't work that way. So accepting, not resigning ourselves to it doesn't mean that we have to say everything's fine, you know, and, and be okay with it. Well, no, I take that back. We don't have to be happy about it, but we do have to be okay with it and, and bring it along with us. Because when we're struggling with that, when we're trying to think positively or feel better or do this or do that, then again, it comes down from a practical aspect of then we're not spending our time in our craft. Mm. The more we try to feel better, I can only do one thing at a time. If I'm going to wrestle with my emotions, I can't pick up my pencil and draw. I think that chapter is is going to be relevant to many of our listeners. I, I, an, uh, a writer who I grew up around, who he and his wife wrote television shows, told me in my when I was beginning my midlife crisis, and we had conversations about issues in our life, and he told me how he had some of the same issues, and he said a lot of people, a lot of people go into the arts have high control needs. And I saw that that's one of the reasons you go into the arts is I can build a world. I have control over this thing, even if I don't have control over the other things. And therefore, to acknowledge those control needs and that a great deal of the response to that is the acceptance and willingness to feel. And that was a that was an encouraging chapter, but it was a difficult chapter for me. Uh, so there were things about finding internal motivation and the intrinsic motivation and the extrinsic motivation and how your outside structure and your internal desires uh, interact. I loved all that. That was the stuff that I felt fortunately that I've done well with students is that start with your loves and then you're going to gradually move into where you're serving clients that you <laughs> may not love. So that arc is going to happen naturally. But the thing about imagery, uh, using imagery to prepare for action. That was a really good one. And it's, it also seems natural for artists who tend toward imagery anyway, 
that this is something that you can use well or poorly, and there were some principles to using imagery. Yeah, and what's exciting about that chapter is when I learned in graduate school, we think, okay, relax and just think positive things. And there's actually much more science to it, particularly if you're trying to develop a particular skill or technique. Um, and it's that PETLEP model, which which stands for, you know, to physically actually do it is and, and the environment, the P and the E are the most important concepts. Can, can we pause a moment for the PETLEP model? That yeah. was, uh, it was a, it was physical, environmental. It was task, meaning task. you had to have a goal, exactly what I want to get accomplished out of it, timing, okay. doing it in real time. Uh, L was the learning, meaning that your imagery will change right. as you grow. Um, e was the emotion. And then P was the perspective. Do I see myself as a first person or third person perspective? And so first person is when I am performing the task, I am in my own mind. I'm in my own experience. Third person is when I've seen video of it. Exactly. I can look at it coolly and objective. And those are two different modes of how we experience our performance. Right. And the research doesn't say that one is necessarily better than the other. But if you're tending to work with emotional aspects, you probably want to do more of uh, like seeing yourself, see your hand on the on the easel and drawing or painting or doing things like that. Um, and then if there's more technical things, like uh, I think more in sport, if you wanted to get a serve correctly or a gymnast, they might look at their body in perfect form from a third person perspective. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry to have uh, stopped you on that, but I no, wanted, no, you did ahead. mention PetLep and, and I think most of our listeners aren't going to know that. Go ahead. I'm That's sorry. That's a good point. Well, and, and so what the research has shown is that, again, different from where we would sit down in a comfortable, comfortable environment and just kind of imagine things going really well. The big points I think for your listeners are, well, if you are going to do the imagery, try to do it in your studio. Um, and then see what, what you're going there. Actually hold the pencil or the paintbrushes. Um, physically move. And you don't have to necessarily paint. But if there's something that you are um, you know, creating or doing. And then the emotions that you bring into it. If you're, for imagery would be really great here is if you're really feeling stuck. Imagine yourself feeling stuck. And then you already have a plan of maybe how you might overcome it. And then how do you go from being stuck to unstuck? Maybe you're going back to those values that we had talked about. Maybe you um, have a, a picture of that outcome. Maybe it's just a deadline. Um, whatever it is that you're using, but you can practice that changing of emotions. And that's a lot, the big difference that they used to call imagery visualization and just kind of seeing what you wanted. But the more you can get the functional overlap, the more we can activate other parts of our brain to make it a more realistic experience by having the environment physically moving, including the emotions, the much richer and more effective and the better the learning the imagery can be. And one of the points I think you made in there is that even if an athlete is injured and cannot do the exercises, they can still use that. It's P-E-T-T-L-E-P, -E -E the PETLEP uh, uh, acronym. Uh, to guide themselves toward imagery that helps. This is an aside, but when I was 19, there was a popular book called Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Are you at all familiar with it or have you heard of it? I might have heard the title, but I'm not familiar with it. I think he was the one who established the popular term self-image. He, he was a plastic surgeon, as I recall, who found that you could change somebody's face and it wouldn't change their life at all. You could change somebody else's face and it would completely turn their life around so that it was not the plastic surgery that did it. It was their perception of themselves. And he developed a series of books, but that was the one that uh, was, was so popular. And that was where I was first introduced to this idea that you can perform your musical instrument even if you are locked into a seat 
on a cross-country flight by vividly imagining, and he suggested that the more vividly you imagine it, including the ambient sounds and the smells and the discomfort of your posture when you're going to be there and what yes. those blinding lights are like, the more vividly you imagine it and the more you can realistically imagine it going well, not I'm a god, but I think it's going well, the more you are rehearsing in advance uh, emotional experiences that can be performed when performing. There was, I, I saw a correlation between what I read 40 years ago and then what you brought up, but was much more based on research, I think, than what Maxwell Maltz did. Well, he's definitely on the right track there. I mean, it goes back to those, you know, mental representations. So again, for your listeners, I think you know, one step better, 1% better than where you are is the best imagery to be having because you can more clearly get that mental representation of where you want to go and strive towards that. And as you're imagining it, you're actually getting firing of the brain uh, to those muscles uh, for the motor learning. And that's why the specificity and um, exactness of what you want is important. Like I could imagine myself dunking like LeBron James. But that's going to do nothing for my confidence because it's way too great. And it's going to do nothing for my motor learning because I really don't know how he's doing any of that. But whatever skill that I want to improve on, I know what that next step is that I want to get. Maybe I've stumbled on it and I'm kind of making mistakes. And the research is outstanding about how much more you can actually physically learn um, just through the mental imagery. Because with that functional overlap and with those neural pathways being rehearsed, you are getting real learning. And that's, that's for motor skills. But the same thing happens when we think about the cognitive maps and other things about, you know, the, the emotions that we want to rehearse in those scenarios too. So again, I can't say enough for the performance anxiety, you know, being able to, yes, imagine yourself being, you know, confident, but spend even more time imagining yourself being nervous because that's what you should be. <laughs> Good. And then imagine yourself handling the nervousness because that's what's actually going to happen. So we don't want imagery to be fantasy. That's not going to get you anywhere. What do you really have to deal with? And Bandurish said this too. It's not really about reducing anxiety, but you'll do much better building your confidence that you can handle the anxiety you'll have. And there's a critical difference there. There sure is. You use the term proximity in your lectures, which is that uh, something you just touched on earlier. I want to take just a moment with that. That was That's really valuable that if it's a big, huge, long-term goal, it can be so inaccessible that it doesn't do any short-term good and can even yeah. discourage. But if it's, as you said, the thing I'm going to do tomorrow, the goal I have this week, the concrete thing that is close, it's in proximity, to imagine that, that's, that's handleable. Yeah, I think that goes back into lecture three, which I had to skip over because I talked over you. But when we talk about values and goals, people think about, you know, dream big and have these long-term goals. And the research finds that that doesn't do anything for you. In fact, sometimes imagining too positive a goal undermines your motivation to get there because you get the dopamine burst of actually imagining success and you already have it. It kills your motivation. Mm. And then when you imagine the long-term goals, it's just kind of a dream out there. So please, like, take those, have them, but understand they're the least effective goals to have. How do you translate that into your short-term goal? And ultimately, what do I need to do today to take that one step towards that? And wow. if you have those daily goals, very actionable steps that'll feed into that long-term one, that's where you want your attention. That is great. That's great. Now, you, you moved on to things like uh, developing focused attention, which was almost a, almost a theme that one of the most important things... With, with the whole course, one of the main things I got out of it as, as just a macro view was that there is a science to excellence. And then 
below that, one of the most common themes was it was be here now in the moment with focused attention and that that will solve a lot of problems. Yes. All of those other things, acceptingness and acceptance and willingness to feel and, and imagery and all of that stuff, that almost clusters around the living in the moment. Mean, uh, focused attention in the moment, I think, was the term, one of the terms you used. If I had to boil it down to one one skill, you're, you're right. It is about the attention because ultimately, if you think about performance, we're always performing in the here and now. And our problems come out because our our mind is typically in the past or the future. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, if you just take any any aspect of your day, I find that we're really rarely present where our feet are. And so, whether it be the mindfulness chapter that really talks about how that is probably the best skill to be able to develop focused attention to anxiety and choking, it ends up being about, you know, thinking about the wrong thing at the wrong time to, um, you know, flow states and being totally engrossed in the here and now. I mean, it, I'm glad it showed up all over the course because it is, it, it actually runs through everything. We live life moment to moment. And it's wonderful that we've got this brain that lets us go into the past and the future. And there are times that we want to do it. Please plan for retirement, learn from your past mistakes. But the ability to choose your attention when you want to, to put it where you want to with volitional control, you'll never get 100% at it. That's not the way the brain is built. So don't feel bad that, oh, my mind keeps wandering. Number one complaint of people practicing mindfulness, oh, I just can't stay focused. I'm like, yes, that's exactly the whole point of the practice. It's to lose focus and then refocus, just like weightlifting. Well, I don't throw it up in the air and expect the weight to float. Gravity brings it down. Nobody gets upset about that because we understand gravity. We know that we build strength because of the repetition. So quick lesson here for your mindfulness or your, your focus training. You, every single one of you, are never ever going to be able to pay attention to anything without getting distracted. I mean, I don't know how long we've been doing this podcast so far, but I'm sure that you've been distracted at least 15 to 20 times, <laughs> at least. <laughs> and the best you can do is catch it early and bring it back. And if you can accept that yeah. and become comfortable with that process and just whether it be in your mindfulness practice or in a classroom or when you're trying to get some work done... Give yourself some compassion and realize that, oh, okay, my mind's just doing what it's supposed to do. But recognize you can develop the skill that every time you catch it and bring it back, you strengthen your awareness and ability to do that. And that's the best we can do. And that's actually yeah. good enough. To bring it back around to how this relates to a career, it's the awareness of a professional. That a person is aware, I am not in the moment, but at least I know I'm not in the moment. Right. And therefore, I can gently and, and with self-compassion. And Okay, I know that my inclination is to want to spend 24 hours with you <laughs> and to have a conversation about each one. Let me quickly go through some of these titles to get this out of the way and to move on to a, a, another couple things I want to ask you. Okay. Uh, there's a chapter on superstitions, rituals, and routines. Uh, a chapter on getting in the zone. Uh, the chapter on performance, anxiety, and choking is a huge one for some people. Uh, being the perfect perfectionist, I'm going to let people just go to your guidebook. By the way, uh, our podcast, because it's sponsored by Wondrium, allows everybody listening to get in on your course for free for whatever it is, I think 14 days or something like that. You can get it at wondrium.com slash draftsman. I have to confess to you, I spent way, way more time in this guidebook 
than I did in the lectures because of my love of taking my time. The, the lectures to me are a bit like trying to drink from a fire hose <laughs> or at least a garden hose. Most of it's going to go right past me. Whereas this, I'm going to sip each teaspoon of it and, and ingest it. So I just filled it with notes. But uh, you have access to the PDF uh, of the guidebook. And so being the perfect perfectionist, you need this if that's your issue. Uh, burnout was one that was really uh, very sobering. The dangers of burnout and how burnout's been studied. And I know some people in my life and I've had some experiences in my life where I began to burn out. That was one of those ones that was excruciating uh, to read because it happens with professionals. Uh, pain tolerance, uh, injury rehabilitation, the dangerous pursuit of the ideal body. The chapter on fan psychology, fan identification and violence, I didn't expect to get that much out of, but because I've been such a fan <laughs> of writers and filmmakers and yeah. artists and performers, not, not of sports particularly. And one of the great ironies of it is that I expected, because it ends on the word violence, that it was going to be a negative view of fan psychology. I was surprised at how much being a fan can affect our lives positively. Oh, yeah. uh, were you a fan through your childhood and adolescence, and are you still? Oh my goodness, yeah. Um, can we can we know of whom? Yeah, and, and finally now I can say it, and I can say it proudly. But the Buffalo Bills, I, I went through a really difficult twenty years <laughs> uh, because they didn't do well. <laughs> yeah, we missed the playoffs for seventeen years. Um, but with uh, Josh Allen now, and, and we just made it to the AFC Championship game last year, like we're, we're back. But I've been a Bills fan since Wide Right back in Super Bowl twenty five. I uh, jumped on the bandwagon then and uh, and then we went through these tough years. And what's so funny about it is, right, the negativity of it, um, you know, shows up when I don't like the draft pick, right? They have a, a, a losing season and I have that sadness. But the benefits of it, um, man, I was just down in Florida for the Miami and the Bills game and you see somebody else wearing the jersey and you you just immediately have friends. And, yeah. you know, you just go, hey, 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 and they respond in the same way. <laughs> and and you have this sense of community and belongingness. And then the interesting thing, too, is the Fairweather fan. One of my favorite stats in, in the course about that is, you know, the Fairweather fans be like, yeah, we won. And, oh, man, they lost again. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like you're only on the team when they're doing well. Um, and then I, I like at the end and what I hope my fandom, because the Bills have never won a Super Bowl, but I can't imagine how rich, like I'm actually starting to get tearful thinking about it when they win. And I know it's coming soon. When they win, like this lifetime of, of you know, 30 years of fandom is just going to be so rewarding in the same way, like for the Cubs fans and stuff like that. It's just, um, yeah, the, the, the psychology of fandom, it's, it's, a, it's a fun, fun topic. It really is. It was much more interesting than I expected it to be. I saw how much it applied to me and also uh, made me acknowledge that we want something bigger than ourselves, even if it isn't going well, to yeah. identify with, to care for, to pay attention to, and yes, the thing of community too. Uh, teamwork, talent, a, de uh, a, de a developmental process, how to be a great sport parent. Oh, what a wonderful chapter and also applicable to teachers. Absolutely. That there is a balance between caring and getting out of the way and that it can be done well and it can be done very badly. 
Oh, that was just a thoughtful gift to the world, Dr. Eddie. I was really, really excited about that chapter. Even though my parenting job is over, I felt like this is something that for the rest of my life, I want to immerse myself in what the principles are of to be a good sport parent in order to be a good guide for talent. Yeah. And we really shouldn't call a sport parent because that was a context that I'd used. But if I could change any of the titles, you know, I could even just, just leave it at parent or you know, performance parent, because, you know, again, whether you're encouraging an artist or a musician uh, or somebody who wants to do well in academics, I mean, this is about how to raise people up so that you can keep them out of my office, right? Because it's when they're growing up and we get these negative coaching behaviors, whether it's from a parent or the expectations, mixing up their identity and their worth, you know, the whole idea of being able to learn about a mastery mindset as opposed to competition too early. These are things that will just create a better generation. Um mm-hmm not only performance-wise, but more importantly for mental health and physical health-wise. So um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. That, that's one I'm particularly pleased with myself. Yes, and it does. Uh, part of it was going back to what you mentioned earlier, how much of it is the responsibility of the athlete and not of the child at first. Right. But as things go on to where there's greater and greater autonomy, uh, it's just really beautifully stated, beautifully presented. Uh, that... The, the final chapter on aging athletes competing and retiring is something that as I was reading, I was thinking most of my students aren't going to care about this because they're anywhere from between the ages of 18 and 30. And so, aging uh, seems far away. But uh, for those of you who are the older ones in in our audience, uh, there's a lot in there. Okay. Now, I've, I've gone through basically the all the topics you had in there. But you also mentioned that a lot of this is to keep people out of your office. <laughs> uh, and and so, there's a few things I want to ask you uh, about that. You, first of all, give us... I should have begun with the technical designation. You are a psychologist, a psychiatrist. You have a PhD in sports psychology. Tell us what your... Sure. How you categorize yourself. Yeah. So, I guess I say my official title would be a performance psychologist. Um mm-hmm. And so, I have a clinical psychology PhD and I'm a licensed psychologist in the state of Michigan. Um, I'm also a a fellow and a certified mental performance consultant through the Association of Applied Sports Psychology. I'm on the U.S. Olympic Committee and or the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee Sports Psychology Registry. Um, And that is uh, the certification. It just kind of lets you know that I've got uh, the, the minimum requirements of working with athletes um, in this sport context of it. Because there's nothing about psych- – because sports psychology and and excellence is different. Whereas typically you'll think about psychology, you kind of think about like if this is average and, you know, then you're good people who are below average. And then psychology, sports psychology is kind of like, well, this is average and, you know, how do we get above it? So – I wanted to not just specialize in that, but I wanted to help people throughout the continuum, which is why I'm a licensed psychologist. So a lot of people who are mental performance consultants, um, they don't really call themselves sports psychologists, but people group it together. But there is a big difference between the mental training um, and then the ability to be able to handle the pathology that might go along with it. So as I had said, I ended up specializing then in the things like performance anxiety and and injury, um, lack of motivation. Um, the things that uh, performers would struggle with the most. Well, you've been a counselor to many, many athletes, right? Over yeah. over decades. Yeah. Uh, it's the difference between developing a course that you've put together for the great courses and counseling an individual athlete, I assume they're quite different worlds where you're dealing with a general public versus dealing with an individual 
who you are reading for what they need specifically? You know, the fun thing is, is that the challenge of doing the course was that most of the great courses, they, they call them rock star professors. So they get the people who have been the best at teaching and then they just do it, you know, in front of the camera. And I'd only taught a couple of classics. I was, I was a clinician much of my career. So I was like, okay, well, this sounds great. I was like, but I got to start creating something from scratch. And so the course actually comes out of my clinical work. So there's a nice overlap because the, the only pers- the main perspective that I had was sort of, well, what have I seen over the last 20 years? And that is what helped me choose the topics. It helped me kind of organize it in a way that made the most sense. Um, and then it was fun to kind of be able to be like, well, these are the problems that I want the listeners, the viewers to be able to solve. And so let me just back it up with some research and then give some examples that illustrate it. And so it wasn't... Um, I mean, the feedback that I'm hearing from you lets me know that as, as a group, we were successful. I wanted to have uh, intellectual integrity, um, but I also wanted it very applied. And I also didn't want it limited to sport. So again, sport is a nice context for life. But um, again, I've worked with um, actresses and uh, you know, concert pianists and, and symphony and artists and you know, even different sports like uh, dog agility, you know, the ones that you wouldn't think are <laughs> you yeah, know, the yeah. most popular football, baseball. And it's just amazing to me how we're much more alike than different. So please don't let the idea of sport, you know, turn people away. I've been so pleased with how people said, yeah, you know, I got those examples, but you know, to some degree, we're all athletes. Uh, You had asked me before we started, like, well, what do I think of as a performer? I'm like, well, a performer is somebody who wants to get something done. Okay. We all want to get something done and we all have roles that we want to perform. And there's a measurement of good or well, and then there's a, a measurement of not doing as good or well. And so it's really, I, I like to simplify it in that way so that these concepts can help people live, coming full circle, their best lives. You get yeah. to decide what the performance context is, but all of these principles will, will apply. After reading the table of contents, I thought, I think this is going to be interesting to make the leap from sports to the arts, partly because it's a leap. It's a creative leap. It isn't that big a leap. You know, Stephen Sondheim, the songwriter, in his the beginning of his book, Finishing the Hat, where he talks about his life in songwriting, uh, also talked about his love of reading cooking columns by chefs, even though he's not a cook, he's not a chef, but somehow he is able to make the, the leap from what a chef does and what a songwriter does. So that the fact that they aren't the same means that your imagination is involved in making these links. Now, these, the, the course to me seems surprisingly complete uh, and surprisingly because I didn't expect all of those topics to be so interesting. But you, you have mentioned that you don't feel like it's complete, right? Is there more that you intend to add to it? Is there stuff in there that you wish had been in there but isn't yet? Yeah, there's there's one big one that um, I, I really wish I took a half hour and did one on sleep and recovery. Sleep and recovery. Sleep and recovery. Um, especially now with the you know what's gone on in the last two years and the things we've been with. But but I've been on this bandwagon for a couple of years uh, more recently. The actual number one performance enhancer is sleep. The 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 right? importance of getting your eight hours. And if you're physically active, you know, the nine hours, if you're a teenager, the nine hours, when you start to get into the seven hours or, or God forbid, less than six, 
the damage that you're actually doing to your body on a daily basis is tremendous. Um, and we have all become our culture just like sacrifices sleep and we reward the people who you come to work early and stay late. But the research has shown, and, and, and all the sport teams are up on this now. I mean, they've even got sleep pods in, in college football locker rooms. Um, you, you listen to any of like Usain Bolt and Tom Brady and LeBron James, and they will tell you that they are getting their 9, 10, 11, sometimes 12 hours of sleep because learning, motor development. I mean, there's not one organ in your body. There's not one process that your body goes through that is not affected by sleep. Wow. So to not have that in the course, I'm, I'm disappointed that I'm like, boy, I really want to get that across. And I'll tell you, when I have athletes or performers um, coming in, I absolutely do a quick sleep assessment. And if they're getting less than six, I won't do any mental training until I get them up to eight hours of sleep. Is that right? It's that big a deal. I refuse to teach wow. or address any symptoms or anything else because I'm like, you've got... You got a cup and if you're not sleeping, you got a bunch of holes in it. So I don't care what I pour into it and what strategies, you're not going to be able to do it. Look, you've got this beautiful Ferrari of a body and there's no gas in it. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we don't, if we don't take the sleep. And this is on a daily basis. We could do many podcasts on this. I'm, I'm inclined to because what you brought up is, is revolutionary. It's thought provoking. It's sobering. Uh, it's and also the fact that you will not take on a client who isn't getting their sleep. It's sort of like you've got self therapy that you're neglecting by sleeping those extra hours that I can't make up for if you're not doing yeah. the 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 work of not doing the work of of, of resting. Well, let me clarify. Hmm. I take them on, but I won't address anything else. The only thing we're going to do see. is sleep. I'll absolutely take okay. them on because I can help them sleep better and figure out why they're not and change their, you know, but I'm just, I let them know right from the beginning, like, look, I know you want to learn some strategies for your game tomorrow, but let me get you into bed earlier and you will have an immediate impact on your game tomorrow if you sleep eight hours versus six. Now, if we start to build that for two weeks, I've had people come back and half the problems they're coming to see me with are just disappearing because they've improved their sleep. Is that right? So it in about two truth. weeks, you can help a person within about two weeks to get better sleep. You've got you've got ways of doing that. Yeah, I've got ways that help people overnight. I mean, it's all a matter of, again, here's where we go. I can't do the push-ups for you, but I can give you the guidelines. And it kind of mm-hmm. depends on... Some people just didn't know. I mean, it's a, it's a scientific fact that when we're sleep deprived, we don't know that we're sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. Like people say, oh, I, I only need five hours. Well, what makes you think that? It's like, well, because I'm doing fine. Well, that's like the, the person who's drunk and saying, I can drive home. We all know yeah. you can't, but they don't know that. So yeah. we can't trust that. The science says in, in, in the research over and over again is that you are impaired. And then I even say, it, I was like, okay, let's say you can get by on seven hours, right? Because you can get by on it. What kind of performance enhancing attitude is that? I'm telling you, if you go from seven to eight, if you go from eight to nine, which people think, oh, that's ridiculous. If you go from eight to nine, you have performance enhancing effects. I can tell you are passionate about this. I'm passionate and almost angry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because everything goes, you know, the world doesn't support it. Our jobs don't support it. We're sending kids to school at seven o'clock in the morning. These poor teenagers, they need to be sleeping. I have never wow. woken my children up from a nap. I know a lot of parents will do that, but one of the proudest things I've done as a parent is I have never woken my child up in the middle of the afternoon or sleeping in or anything else. And I'm telling you, particularly for one of my kids who was just great at the beginning about putting himself to bed before the rest of the family, I think a lot of his success had to do with his sleep schedule. 
Because wow. every single day he was maximizing his learning, his maximizing his retention. He was clearing his mind so that when he went to school the next day, he was able to absorb the information. It affects mood. It affects weight gain. It affects hunger. Um, for me personally, I told you I like to lift heavy things. When I found out that if you go to bed earlier at the early stages of sleep, and you're getting your full hours, you get the most human growth hormone dump into your body. So if you want to, I was like, well, okay, I'll, I'll sleep longer. <laughs> like, just to maximize my workout to get more HGH. Oh, Like, so whatever, whatever motivation you have, like whatever reason you have to not sleep, I will be able to tell you a reason why that sleep will by far move your productivity up for whatever half hour or hour that you're, you're, you're missing. I promise you. I found also that I used to sleep 10, 11 hours a night just all the time. It was just a natural thing through my adolescence and, and 20s and 30s. And as I've gotten older, it's gone down to nine and sometimes eight hours and eight hours. Some people say, oh, I never sleep eight hours. I, I sleep until I'm done sleeping. Most of the time, I don't wake up to an alarm. And it is for reasons that you're mentioning. Yeah. Is that I just do better when I finish the cycle Yes. without having been abruptly yanked out of it. Is that an important part of it? That if you sleep naturally, you wake up at seven and a half hours, that that's okay? Yeah, you, you can test that. I mean, it's again, here's where we get into that uh, clarification of medical advice that we said mm -hmm. at the beginning here. So this yeah. is, of course, general because there are early birds that get up early. There are, you know, night owls that have to be on different shifts. Um but I'm going to make it towards the point of uh, a big conversation, the performance aspect. And what about naps? Well, the best thing is like naps can help. But if, you, if you're sleeping only six hours and then supplementing with a nap, it's much, much better to tack it on at the end and, and get it fully through. Because not all sleep is created equally. At the beginning of the night, in the first couple of hours, you're getting your um, deeper uh, stage four sleep. And that tends to shorten as the night goes on. And then you start to get more... REM sleep. And each of those sleep stages have different um, restorative properties. So if you're getting up early and shortening it at the end, you're going to miss out on the REM. Uh, if you're going to bed way too late, you're missing the greatest opportunity for the, the, the deep sleep and you're going to feel different. But if you're getting your full eight hours, there's also a science to, to the power naps. You can't make up sleep. So another aspect of it is that if you know you're going to be up and you're like, okay, I'll catch up on the weekends, there is no such thing as catching up. You Once you've lost it, you've lost it. But if you know that you're going to be sleep deprived because uh, you, have to, you have an all night thing that you need to do, sleep ahead of time, store up the sleep, and then it tends to buffer the detrimental effects on your performance while you're without sleep. And then going to the naps... This is where you're talking about the sleep cycles. We go in about a 90-minute sleep cycle to get through all of the stages, the light, the heavy, and the REM. So if you're going to take a power nap, you really want to limit it to about 20, 20 minutes or less, 20, 25 minutes, because that keeps you in the light stages of sleep. And that actually has restorative effects. Usain Bolt, I believe, would take a nap before he won a gold medal. Mm -hmm. it, it helps. But if you start to creep into that hour, now you're in the deep sleep phase and when you get out of that, you get a sleep hangover. You're groggy. Your brain's not really online. You can actually feel worse. So if you have to take a long nap, you try to do it around that 90 minutes. So that's when you say you're not getting that interruption. If you're letting yourself wake up naturally, yeah, I would assume it's probably at the end of that REM cycle. And you tend to go through about four or five of these cycles a night of 90 minutes. Um, the most important thing for sleep is a consistent bedtime and awake time, mm -hmm. which is probably what my 
performers fight with the most because our lives aren't quite that structured and we want to sleep in on the weekends. But it's been consistently shown more than anything that the number one thing to enhance your sleep, to develop that circadian rhythm, our bodies love rhythm, is to be consistent with your sleep and wake time. So that's wow. that's one anyway. This is just wonderful. You've got it's it's that's strong. It, it explains so much. I think back on a friend of ours who was a racquetball champion, and she told us that she slept 10, 11 hours every night and how important that was to her. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that was not in the course. That was not. And if you guys know, if you you've got creators, right? You you I mean, more than more than athletes, right? You've this unique aspect where creation is important and thinking and, and, and again, I'm not an artist, I can't speak for it, but I mean, from everything you've told me and the artists that I've talked with, the, the thinking and the clarity of thought and the ability to, to focus, all of this is tremendously enhanced. But, you know, if you, if you want to create more and you're sleeping six hours, forget everything else, go to bed. If, you, if you're only at seven hours and you want to create more, don't, I don't care what, what strategies you have to get more creative. Just go to bed. Please give me, test me, challenge me. <laughs> give me 30 days of eight to nine hours of consistent bed and you tell me how much better you are. Send me an email, dreddy at dreddyoconnor.com. The doctor <laughs> has spoken. You have heard it. There, is, there are no excuses for I didn't know. Okay. Now, many of our listeners, maybe most of our listeners, may not be able to afford you to hire you as a, a therapist. So, there's there's two other things I, I want to ask you. Uh, well, one of them may take too long. One is, if you had, if you just had 10 minutes with a person or an hour with a person, let alone six months or a year, what is your strategy for how you deal with a person? When sure. what's the, Do you have an order of the way you help a client? Well, a couple of times, like, so if I consult with a team, for example, I might only have 10 minutes. And so really, I, I just, I've got this warehouse of knowledge. And so the dialogue will go something like this. They'll say, hey, doc, like, yeah, what do you need? They'll quickly tell me the problem and I'll give them the strategy to fix it. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a Band-Aid, but honestly, half the time that they just didn't know. I'll give you a quick example of a tennis player um, who had all these focus issues, et cetera. And I said, well, what do you choose to focus on? She said, excuse me? I'm like, well, what do you pick? To focus on. She goes, well, tennis. I'm like, but specifically, she goes, I don't know what you mean. I'm like, okay. I was like, do you, do you choose your attention? She goes, no, I just pay attention to whatever's going on. Sometimes it's the ref. Sometimes it's the people there. It's what they're saying. It's my opponent's doing. I'm like, okay, just do this. What do you think is the most important thing to pay attention to? She goes, mm, the ball. I'm like, I, I don't, I'm not a tennis coach, but I'm not going to go out of my lane, but I would think that's a good thing. Why don't you try focusing on the ball by choice? Week later, her anxiety is down and she's performing better. So sometimes it can be that simple that we haven't been told some of these. I mean, I'd love to say that sports ecology is rocket science, but as you go through the course, it isn't. I mean, I'm teaching, you know, adolescents this and I want to make it simple. And some of these things can be. So if I only had 10 minutes, I'd be like, what's your problem? Now, if I've only got 10 minutes with you and I had to pick one strategy, it would be this. Focus on the win and win stands for what's important now. So much like you had said, Marshall, you were like, gosh, this focus thing seems to be coming through the whole course and, and things of that nature. The, the number one strategy I think that my athletes and performers benefit from um, and report in my lectures when I or presentations when I give it, the, the favorite strategy is always this, this win concept. If you can ask yourself throughout the day, what's important now? 
and bring your attention to that and you ask yourself this 10, 20, 30 times a day, you will do so much better. So if I said right now, Marshall, what's important now, right? Your mind might be wondering, if I said, what's important now, what would your performance enhancing answer be? Uh, My performance enhancing answer would be to not drag this on too long and wear you out. Nope, nope, nope. But bad answer, right? <laughs> right. Well, and that's why I ask it because we think, okay, that makes yeah. sense. But a lot of times people will be like, well, what's important now is to get better or to, they give me some outcome. The most important you know, thing is, is to, to be my very best or the most mm-hmm. important thing right now is to focus. And I say, no, in this conversation, what's most important now is me because I'm speaking and we're having a conversation. Now that's right. means right now. Yeah. So if it's what's important now, it's if I'm sitting with my family, it's my family and having that conversation. If it's making dinner, it's the ingredients that I'm cooking or the minute that I have there. If I am 10 seconds ahead or behind, that's not what's most important. What's important now? If I'm studying for a test, it's studying for the test, not getting a good grade on the test. That's an outcome. Right. So what's important now is an action step of what I can do. And so for the last hour, Marshall, you and I, what's most important now is me listening to your questions, giving an enthusiastic answer, and you listening to me and responding and being engaged. Anything else that comes from that, you know, like I can take care of my fatigue and you, you probably guess I'm not going to get tired of this. We can keep going. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, that, those, those are the things that we get caught up in. And by all means, ten, if I have 10 minutes with you, I would just go into depth and go through many examples of What's important now in every stage of your life? If you can identify that, a lot of your problems are going to go away because you can only do one thing at a time. And if you know what the most important thing is and commit yourself to that, you're golden. At this moment. At this very moment, as it's happening. Dr. Eddie, this has been so good. It has been so useful. Good. Uh, To our audience, you make the application to how this relates to your drawing, painting, podcasting, music, whatever it is. This is a draftsman podcast and we've talked often about the fundamentals, the elements, the principles of what picture making is. I would love to spend 24 weeks with one week per chapter on that. No, 25 now because we've added yes, sleep and, and sleep, sleep would come early in the whole thing. <laughs> Get sleep first or else we're not going to carry through. Yes. Uh, now, if our audience wants to keep in touch with you, what are the best ways for them to keep in touch with what you're offering? Sure. Um, well, the easiest central place is my website, dreddieoconnor.com. D-R-E-D-D-I-E-O-C-O-N-N-O-R. People spell it wrong sometimes. Okay. Um, so that's the nice hub for everything else. What I'd really, like you had mentioned about, like I certainly have individual consulting. I can consult with people all over the country um, internationally too, because now with telehealth in particular, so I've got a fully uh, functioning telehealth practice. Um, but what I'm really excited about and where you may be particularly interested is in uh, a new project that I have developed over the last year called Success Stories Membership. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of people who've been through my course are actually in this membership as a follow-up. And it's kind of the best of both where um, I'm creating the modules of everything that we had talked about to be in modular format. But as you had said, you know, this can, this can be pretty dense and, you know, uh, you know, maybe the, the fire hose of, of, or fire hydrant rather drinking it so quickly in the course. The idea of the membership is that you can pace yourself and take the information um, as, uh, as is comfortable for you. So when you had said, what would I advise for somebody if I had six months or a year, you know, investing a year into the membership would be a fantastic way to go and very extremely cost effective. Um, because it's a group, a community of high achievers working together. You get my personal instruction through the, the recorded modules, and then you get to do it at your own pace. 
So I'm going to offer something special now for the people who want to jump in early. I'm still creating it. So it's at a, a, a lower price right now. And this is going to be the summer of the membership where I'm going to really invest in completing all the modules and really leveling it up. But if you want to get in early, um, it's closed right now. I, I only did one launch and then I opened it up for a little bit because I'm really working on it. But if you send me an email with draftsman as like a code word, I'll just open it up personally for you to get you in. Um, and if you want to do that in the next three months, you'll get in at sort of that, that founding member, early member price. Um, because then once I've got it fully built and it's fully functioning, um, it'll be a bit more uh, of an investment. Um, and if you join now, um, you're locked in for your life. As long as you want to stay a member, I won't raise wow. the price on you. So it's a real advantage if you want to get in early. Um, so you can okay. just send me an email through my website with Draftsman and I'll send you a link to get in. Okay. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was a privilege to get to interview Dr. Eddie O'Connor. Thanks for being with us and looking forward to more. Yes, let's do it again. Best wishes to everybody. Bye.